right, Pooja, are you ready? Yeah. All right, we're going to let it flow. Okay. Here's the story of three jilted Indians who were doing stuff and then got pissed off because a megalomaniac was elected. And now we need you to know our story so he don't kill us. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Jazz hands. (laughs) (laughs) This is Pooja. Miranda. And Anju. And we are bringing you episode seven. And I swear we're not even drunk yet. Um, Speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) We're bringing you episode seven, all about a book we said we were reading back in episode one. For finally, the review of all the Single Ladies by Rebecca Traster. It's just called... The, oh, you're right. It is all the same. <laughs> we, I'm telling you, we we'll read this that. book. We'll you're the one who read it last and should have the title And memorized. has the book in front of her. Yeah. 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 My thought was on top of it. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, we've been teasing this book all season. I'm sure you're sick of hearing about it, but now we're actually going to talk about it. And this episode was actually recorded in March, not May 27th like we are now, because we read when we say we're going to read. So... Let's right. Yes. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So how did we come to pick this book, Miranda? Well, there was this really cool article that was out that had a bunch of feminist reads on it. We have, of course, a couple of favorites that are coming up. We are celebrating the opening of Wonder Woman this week. June 2nd. Yes. And there's actually a book in that list on Wonder Woman. And I think that's what enticed us was the secret history of Wonder Woman. But in that list was this particular book. And I was drawn to it because of the title, because I freaking love Beyonce. But then we, what, looked into it, and it looked great. Yes, and so it was. It came from a list of, I think, nine feminist books you should be reading right now. And this was the one that appealed to us the most, because it talks about the rise of the single woman as an independent economic class. So that being us, single, economically classy women, uh, <laughs> we thought this book would resonate with us. So we're going to... Also, we hoped it would help us answer the question of why we haven't been gotten married yet. Mm, it didn't really answer that, but it gave me good reasons to tell my relatives why I'm never getting married. Right. So let's go around and... Well, first, let's give a summary of the book. So basically, who wants to do that? Well, I was totally inflamed by this book because every time a woman has tried to get herself power. Mm-hmm. Anytime a woman has done anything to create power for herself and the women around her, there was always a smear campaign to tear her down. There w- it was almost like this one little thing that we were asking for, it wasn't just given a no. It was like given a no plus a smackdown plus an elbow in your face into the ground plus legislation to make sure you don't ever ask again. Yeah. And it, it, it just seems like every time a woman has tried to gain power, men have smeared her face in the ground. Not only that, men have convinced other women to smear those women into the ground. And she goes through the history of that in it, like, in a sort of, I mean, she has to be abbreviated in it because that would be a really huge book. But <laughs> she, she does she does focus specifically on the history in, the, in America. So it's not like the history of marriage in the world. Or no. Anything. And I feel like, one of the things I would like to point out about this book is that it is intersectional. It's so many feminist tomes that we read often come from one perspective. And so you have to look to either, you know, postmodern feminism or black feminists to find what you want out of feminism sometimes. And I feel like this book did a really good job of kind of, you know, saying it's 
essentially the same struggle. And here's where we differ. But because she does bring up a lot of here's what it was for white women, but here's what it was for minority right, women. Right. And it's always been shittier for yeah, minority women. Yeah, it's like oh, white women were were you know benefiting from these things, but they came from the poor people, women of color who struggled and were already doing that, and they weren't really benefiting at the same level. Can I just say that this book empowered me to stand up to people when they say something shady about women or class structures in general? Because women are second-class citizens and have been, and it's laid out pretty fundamentally in this book for you to see how. So a couple weeks ago, I went out with a gentleman who is of the um, white persuasion, and we were at Yeah, a, he chose to be white. He chose to be yeah. white. <laughs> and he... Um, Okay, look, he also didn't vote in his first presidential election until this year, so we can... Don't stick up for him. Was so, he, wait, is he 18? No, he's 36. <laughs> and so um, he, he... He's still 18 in some ways. Right. And so he and I were talking about something, and he mentioned something about the erosion. These new policies are going to erode the middle class. And I said, but... You know, I pointed out to him, like, there's no such thing as a middle class if you're a minority. And then he said something about, well, you can agree that now people who only have a single income family will now have to be two. And I'm like, I can't agree to that because I come from a two income family who never had a choice. And there are millions of people who don't have that. And it ended with me saying to him, screaming in a bar, I wish I could live in your privilege to see how the world could be. But I live in reality where the world is. And then he's like, well, if we disregard race and gender, I'm like, is that going to happen when we walk out of what this bar? What magical fairyland are you? Yeah. <laughs> what is the point of talking about hypotheticals like that when we're nowhere near achieving them? And this book shows you, A, how far we've come, and B, that it is how a How far we've got. Yeah. And yeah. not only... When women got power, like the 19th Amendment being ratified, it and there was, was kinda, immediately a backlash. There was it. there was a backlash, and there was institutional sexism continued living on, and that's what we deal with today. How we deal with that is yesterday we were all talking on Facebook about there was a movie company that's local to Texas that wanted to do an all women well, screening. They started in Texas. They are in other parts of the country now. Alamo Draft House which is a local Austin company. Yes. Wanted to do a women's only screening of the new Wonder Woman movie. On June 2nd, the day it's coming out, which actually is like three blocks from my office and I totally wanted to go. Right. So they were doing a women's only screening. They they made a point about saying that they were really committed to the women's only thing. It wasn't just for their the people coming to see the movie, but that everybody who would be working for that screening behind the projector behind the concession stand anything they would all be women or are identifying as women the alma trap house in dallas also took up this cause and money raised for these screenings are going to be for a local women's shelter that deals with domestic violence. wait but to talk about why dallas is now put doing it is because there was a huge backlash from men really 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 upset that they couldn't go to this one particular screening at this one particular theater to watch this one movie and please keep in mind there are multiple screenings of the same movie at the same time at the same motherfucking theater like so, even alamo draft has house has many other locations in austin and in other parts of the city or other parts of the state and country like new york has one in california whatever um so yeah if you really needed to see it and you really needed to go to the alamo draft house and you're a man you happen to have a penis you could still go to any of these other locations to watch the movie but that was not good enough oh right and not to mention that women who are also misogynists also joined in in this conversation again but most women 
didn't. And, yeah. and there and are lots a lot of, of men And lots of didn't. men didn't either. A lot of men stuck One up of my, for it either. So there was this whole like complaints campaign or whatever on Twitter and on their Facebook page of people complaining about this. And the social media manager for Alamo Draft House is amazing and was really, really great with like immediate, very calm, but very kind of smart ass comments about this. And, and that's where they decided, you know what? This is doing so well. We're so happy about this reaction that we're going to add a second screening because the first one sold out. Which yeah. Also sold out within less than, less than a day. And then we're going to push it out to our other locations around the country. So that's why Dallas is doing it. New York is doing it. So that's pretty awesome. And Dallas made a similar post and got the exact of same course. kind of backlash. And what was amazing, I, of course I chimed in, with my own insult. I didn't see her comment. I, I didn't read through it enough. It was something like, we are so sorry the Alamo Draft House gives zero fucks about fragile masculinity. However, they will be accepting male tears <laughs> to be used as mixers in cocktails. It's salty. Salty. Yes. Salty mixers. rims. Yes. Salt. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. Salty mixers for the cocktails bottoms up. Yay. My least favorite comment. I got a lot of likes. It did. And it got a couple. There was like, there was very, nobody. The funny thing is the reason why men didn't go full man baby on this is because the manager, Bill, joined in and said, should we have bitters? Or (laughs) big ice cubes or small ice cubes? Help us. And that's what the Alamo Draft House responded with. Every time somebody said something like, uh, a man would be like, oh, I'm going to dress up as Wonder Woman. They're like, ooh, how good is your costume? And then another person goes, well, there's an easy fix here. I'm just going to identify as a woman. And then Alamo Draft House responded with, Congratulations on your new life decision. We just want you to know that this is going to be a safe place for you. And they just burned everybody. Everybody got burned. And there was this one bitch who was like, It takes an extremely hateful person to call a man who is being sexist against... Because the argument was that this was sexist. The argument was that if the same thing was done for men only, that that would be considered discriminatory, and so it shouldn't be okay for women to do it. Right, because men have had it so hard. Those poor fucking babies. Which, anyway, I mean, first of all, go ahead. First of all, first of fucking all, <laughs> Toby Keith just gave a concert in Saudi Arabia for men only. Oh, but it was Saudi Arabia. But it's Toby Keith who hates Muslims. Right. What the hell was he even doing in Saudi it's a Arabia? Private. Men only concert in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia, yeah. That leads yeah. into a whole another conversation about, about how Toby Keith is really just a whore for whoever will fucking pay him and doesn't actually have principles, but that's a different conversation. Well, who's gonna keep him in Botox, <laughs> So juxtapose that last week because Orange Mort was in quote unquote the Middle East. He visited two in countries it for the in the region. You mean? Yeah. So he was over there because apparently Orange Mort knows like four people who really trust him and he's one of them. So it made him feel comfortable. And if I was Saudi Arabia and I was like, what American entertainer could I bring over to show America that we do ascribe to their culture? It would have been Beyonce, but she's pregnant. So you got Toby Keith. Okay, cool. All right. Beyonce wouldn't do anything for Trump anyway. Like, if you're calling this sexist, I need you to be at every red hat ladies group. And you need to taunt these 60-year-old women who won't give a fuck about you, about how sexist they're being. So, can yeah. I ask a question? Pooja is our resident uh, legal expert. Oh, shit. 
Let's go find somebody else, but all right. <laughs> their, their, their argument was, apparently there have been lawsuits against, like, ladies' nights being, like, price discrimination, which I can kind of see. Mm-hmm. Is there a legal standing for arguing that this is discriminatory practice? Alamo Draft House is not publicly traded. It's a private company, and it's allowed to do whatever the fuck it wants to. Really? There you have it, ladies and gents. And I mean, I would also think the fact that they have multiple other screenings at multiple other locations also means that it's not really discriminatory. I mean, if you want to come down on, like, a private institution being discriminatory, there are precedents for, yes, you're violating federal law. But they're not. They're making accommodations, and it's not to the exclusion of an entire class of people that would economically oppress or, you know, impress some other detrimental-like <laughs> outcome to them. Uh-huh. There are alternatives presented. Right. And in terms of the Supreme Court and the litmus test they put out, it's always a reasonable person standard. So if a reasonable person can look at the situation and see, oh, there's an alternative, I am not harmed by this, then that's your standard, right? Mm-hmm. And so if a reasonable person, a.k.a. anybody but a misogynist, looks at this, there is reasonable accommodation being made. And also, like, baseline, they're a private company and they can do whatever the fuck they right. want. So. My favorite comment, by the way, was from a dude who tagged his wife and was like, hey, if you want to go see this with some of your girlfriends, I promise not to be as butthurt as all these salty dudes. Ah, <laughs> love it. Um, if he wasn't single. I mean, if he was single. Um, yes. Yeah, let's, okay, so getting back to the book. My favorite story in this book is actually how the 19th Amendment was passed. And so it was the story about that one Tennessee senator that was last senator to vote to ratify, to give you the two-thirds majority. And the only reason he voted to ratify was because he got a letter from his mother. And his mother was like, now, baby, basically, why won't you do this? You know, I'm your mama. Basically, basically, I'm I'm dumbing it down. (laughs) Honestly. So this lady was like, son, come on now. Do your mother a solid. I wipe your ass. And so he was like, you know what, mama, you is right. So he went in and he voted, yes, let's ratify this shit. I think he was a state senator because states had to ratify it by two-thirds, right? Mm -hmm. So he was a Tennessee state senator. He had to hide out in the Capitol building until the mobs that found out that it passed. The 19th Amendment was legal left. That was my favorite story in this book (laughs) for several reasons. Because I struggle a lot with being a misanthrope and being a nihilist. And this just illustrates that one person can make a difference if one person to them makes a difference. Like this one person made a watershed difference in the lives of women in this country. Because his mother was like baby you know so no more thanksgiving dinners i'm gonna hate your wife and your kids like you know shit like that so um so it's like women if you want to hero yes hero hero if you want to see a change in the patriarchy keep nagging your men i'm just kidding don't do that i don't like the term nagging but do what you got to do so that was my favorite story in the book and then compare it now to what People are doing, men are doing in the Senate, which is like body slamming reporters and shit and still winning. That to me says that, you know, the patriarchy is a really strong foothold in what we're doing. But going back to what you said, Miranda, it traces the history of feminism. It also talks about, let's talk about 1994, which was my first realization that I was a feminist when I was 13 during the Clarence Thomas hearings with Anita Hill. So that event, according to Tracer's timeline, signal to women when they saw how Dr. Hill was treated during the senatorial confirmation hearing when she was questioned about why was she trying to take down a powerful man not you know what did this man specifically say to you to make it a hostile work environment you uncomfortable and you question everything he thinks or does you know not that it was more of a 
to use a very racist term, a circle the wagon type of situation where they protected quote unquote their own. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they Republicans were in charge during the George H. W. Bush era, and so they needed this Republican nominee in the court. But the repercussions of that, of having women who came up in the postmodern feminist era, was more women ran and won congressional seats that Right, year. and by the way, it wasn't just that they attacked her for being a woman. It was that they attacked her for being a single woman, as if that meant clearly that there was something wrong with her. Right, she's deformed. That she was either desperate for male attention, that she was crazy, that whatever, and therefore her judgment was not to be trusted, essentially. Yeah. And one of the things I can say about this book is that if you are a feminist and you've been in this for the long haul, this book doesn't present anything new that you didn't already know. It organizes it in a way that you can see the patterns. Mm -hmm. But if you are new to feminism, if you are a former misogynist, where you are just like, what are all these women talking about? It can't be that bad. Read this book and see the history. But the history is only in this country of what women have had to endure. And even then, it gives you an appreciation as a woman today what had to happen for us to even be sitting here hosting a fucking podcast, you know? That was, I mean, I don't think of myself as being new to feminism per se, but I'm not someone who's like taking women's studies classes and things like that. So it was interesting for me just to read about the history of feminism, about the details that I never really knew about second wave feminism and about, you know, like how all these things happened. The 19th Amendment, all of that, suffragists, all of that stuff. It was really interesting. Specifically single women. Yes, and women it was specifically about single women. Women who chose to be alone women. and how they were the catalysts that created change right. that gave us the rights that we have and yet single women are still dogged. They detail basically what created that culture and how it continues to persist today. Yes. So to back up just a little bit, I just, not only does she talk about, and, and it's very, very thoroughly and well-researched, by the way, but she talks about the history of unmarried women in the U.S., the struggles they face, and how they have always been at the forefront of social change. And then she also interviews tons of women from all around the country in all walks of life, all racial backgrounds, all gender orientations and classes to talk about their experiences as single women so it not only is the history of it but it that's part of the reason why it's so intersectional as you were talking about pitches because she talks to all of these different women to get their personal experiences of it thank you for bringing that up that's the other part of how this book is divided so it's history and then it's personal anecdotes to relate to how the history has changed and kind of prognosticate where we can go from here so i would say the middle part of the book is anecdotes like Anshu was saying about single women formerly married women women who are committedly single women who are still looking and at the end of the book she does single mothers single mothers she does give a summary at the end of the book about where these people are for the most part now because the book did take years to write and years to research like you mentioned one of my favorite things about all of these stories is they illustrate the same thing to me which is something I'm going through right now it is the struggle when you realize that you want to remain single, but the system is built to not have you achieve that goal. Tax breaks that are built in, the benefits that are built in, and being coupled outweigh what is available to you for being single. And as a woman, it's less than because, you know, there is a wage gap. So as a single man, you can afford more and better, whereas a single woman, you can't, right? Right. And God forbid, you have dependents that get, you know, a chunk of your money. If you're truly, Mm -hmm. if you're single and childless, you're in a better position than if you're a single mother, which I think 
is a fucking disservice. Yeah. Absolutely. To wombs everywhere. You know? Absolutely. But that was one of the things but that But pro-life. Really... <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. That was... Let's spin on that, Miranda. I know you have words on that. Uh, oh, no. I have my, words. my favorite... So that's... That was my favorite chapter was a chapter for poorer, which talks about the economic struggles of single women. And, it, and one of my favorite topics was how there's a push in government... Right now, today, there's this, this belief amongst the right that the solution to welfare problems and social programs is marriage. That the problem is the whole welfare queen idea that, that the reason these people are on welfare is because they are unmarried, that they have substituted government for having a husband, and that the solution is to push them to get a husband so they don't need government to support them anymore. I'm going to interrupt you right here and ask the listeners to please watch, at this point, Ava DuVernay's Oscar-nominated documentary, 13th, on Netflix. Yes. Okay. So that's part of it. The discussion is that is only true if, A, you have eligible men to marry, and B, those eligible men are capable of contributing financially or in some other way that helps to support your family, which is not the case for all poor women in this situation. So there's a reason that they choose not to get married because it does not actually benefit them. So specifically, the tie-in between 13th, If for those of you who don't know, 13th is a documentary all about the private prison system in black America. Right. Okay. And so one of the hypotheses is that the government has criminalized certain activities in order to make criminals out of a certain segment of the population. Black males. Specifically. Yes. And because black males are being shipped off to prison... For, At for, disproportionately for, large numbers, there for, are fewer of them who are available and economically viable as spouses. Right. So that keeps women down, and it also keeps men down. I wrote down a couple of notes about this because this was horrifying to me for a number of reasons. First of all, government has no business pushing marriage on anybody. Like Period. telling telling you that you need to get married, that's not, that's not a job that government has. That's ridiculous. You should be suspicious. But A, B, but specifically in order for them to save money. <laughs> that's particularly gross. You should be suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> but on top of that, there's proven examples where Anti-poverty programs lead to higher rates of marriage and lower divorce rates, whereas programs that push marriage do not lower poverty rates or lead to more or longer lasting marriage. So if you want people to get married, what you need to do is help them to stop, like, get themselves to a more economically stable position, they are more likely to get married than if you were telling them to get married to put themselves in an economically but, stable position. Uh, <sighs> And here's my favorite anecdote about this was in 2014, Senator Rand Paul wanted to cap welfare benefits for single women who have children out of wedlock. And this is a direct quote. Married with kids versus unmarried with kids is the difference between living in poverty and not. Isn't he gay though? Wait, wait, wait. But in his own state... At the time that he made that claim, there were more married parents living in below the poverty line than there were unmarried parents, which directly contradicts that. Marriage is not the thing that magically gets you out of poverty. <laughs> Wait, people think that? Yes, that's what this is all about. If you get married, you will stop being poor. But okay, but how does it stop you being poor when it starts out and being like this? Debt builder. Like a wedding is a debt builder. Like, wait, wait, wait. They don't fucking care about be women being married. They don't care about us being okay. They right. care about us being down. 
They care about us being inferior. And in the patriarchy, as long as the patriarchy is an institution, women will be second rate. Women will be less empowered. That just goes together. It's not that marriage creates a decrease in women's power. It's that through the institution of marriage, just perpetuating the man as the head of the household bullshit, then you have an unempowered female gender. On top of that, the whole thing about introducing abortion laws and abortion, you know, having complete smear campaigns against abortion, the whole purpose, the whole reason why that is, is because if women have the right to abortion, then they don't need men. And well, if they don't need men, they have power. Right. And that's kind of the whole point of this, isn't it? If you make unmarried, like single mothers are the, some sort of specter, are the, the cause of poverty, are, you know, are the problem in society, essentially, is single mothers raising children alone. And if they, would just, them- and if they would just get married, and if they would just have husbands who would help support the family, then those kids would be better off, and society would be better off, and blah, 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 blah. Thank but at the same but at the same time you you are also pushing programs that make it difficult for these women to get abortions difficult for these women to get contraception basically making it impossible for them to plan to not have these children that you don't want them to have that is you're forcing them into this position and then also demonizing them for it going back to a point Miranda made during our women's march episode if you are truly pro-life you care about the life after it's born and there are policies in place that that don't do that. So you don't care about life. They're you, pro-money. Yeah, you're pro-money. Plus, it's a proven fact that if you really want to reduce the instances of abortion, what you do is you, you help people to not need abortions. Like, that's how you teach them. You give yes. them oh, the ability to plan their family. Like, Planned Parenthood, the almost minuscule amount of the money that goes toward Planned Parenthood, a minuscule amount, goes toward abortions. The rest of it is affordable women's health care. Women need to go to the doctor more than men, period. We have bodies that need medical, regular medical attention. And they want to knock down the entire institution that takes care of women. Because there's this one thing that also gives women power. What's interesting to me reading that whole portion, what I was really curious about is if somebody had done a study about whether the poverty rate had actually risen. So the book talks about how the rate of unmarried women had gone up from the 50s and 60s, right? About how that was the era during which the cult of domesticity existed and it was very much like the 50s leave it to beaver mentality. So I'm just curious, is the rate of poverty higher now than it was then? Because if it's not, then your hypothesis that it's about single women, that that's the reason for poverty, does not hold up. The rate of poverty is higher than it was then, but not because of this. It's because of you're making it harder for a quote-unquote family unit to survive above the poverty level by shipping off half the people in prison. And also our population has grown significantly since then because after World War II, like immigration laws opened up, they weren't as restrictive because also the baby boom. Yes, because also America felt bad about what it did to the Japanese people, so it was a little less restrictive. I think in the sixties is when the ban on Asian immigrants stopped. Right. So yes, there was a population boom then and there was an influx of immigrants then and more mouths to feed mean less money to have right so wages Mm. wages didn't really go up to account for 
Wages didn't go up for women, and it stayed that way. Right. Right? I mean, I'm uncomfortable with blaming the increase in poverty on an increase in population because that feeds into this myth that we have to close our borders in order to protect ourselves. it doesn't because it means that America didn't respond to infrastructure needs. Right. That's what it means. We also have not even addressed the distribution of wealth, which is ridiculous. (sighs) So I don't... I was angry reading this book, but also super fucking empowered. Yes. Yes. And I will never enter the institution of marriage, probably. But if I do, again, like I said in that previous episode, tax purposes. I'll (laughs) take advantage of the system as, as it is right now. Talking about, once again, about the poverty and single motherhood thing, another thing I really liked about that segment, she talks about how we talk about these women, these welfare queens, as if they're dumb or they're lazy or whatever, and they make these poor choices, right? Because they're either not educated or they don't have the opportunities. And she talked to some of these women, and it was like, they're making the best choice for them. And it was a really interesting topic about how Sometimes for them, having these children young was actually the best choice because they don't see their economic situations getting better. So that the things that they did have in their favor, their youth, their health, the family members that were available to be some sort of economic support, those are things they were going to lose if they waited. So they were better off having those kids now while they had the advantages they did have instead of waiting for those advantages to go away. And I thought that was really interesting because we don't talk about it that way, you know? We think about it as, oh, if you waited, you could have more advantages. And to these women, they're like, no, there are no, this is what my life. It's not what getting advantage. better. It's yeah. not getting better. It's going downhill. Advantage with a lowercase a, right. by the way. Right. In one of the stories they talked about, it was a woman who had to make the decision of going to school and having her child. And she did both. And this woman is a fucking superhero. And she's, yes. still, she's still with the father of her baby and all that stuff. And she said that after she had the baby, went re-enrolled in school immediately because she knew if she took time off, she wouldn't do it. And so she made herself go. Just go right back. I know so many women with that exact same story. And to me, even saying that it's a benefit to have the kid young will be turned against us somehow. It's like, well, why don't you have the kid young if your parents are still alive and healthy enough to look after them? You have that support system. That's I feel like that will be turned ugly as an excuse to not provide a service in the future. I agree that it's a wonderful thing, but I feel like her pointing it out will lead to something. But she's pointing it out because their options are limited and it's, they don't see any way of improving their situation. Right. So this is their, their peak, even as low as it is for, compared to the rest of us. This is their peak for mm-hmm. them. Yeah, but then I feel like that's going to be turned around on the rest of us. Who have kids later and like, well, you should have had them younger. Look at all, look at all these single moms that have survived it. Right. You know. But, but for the women who choose to wait, it might not have been their peak. Maybe they did have the opportunity to go to school and to get an education and, and to get a better for paying the job. Women, respect for the women who, despite having these little little infants, go to school anyway and hustle and make it work. Uh, yeah. When I was teaching a lecture course several semesters ago, there it was. Uh, Music appreciation, it was a 250 capacity class. Uh, There was a woman who would sit in the front row every single class. And she, toward the end of the semester, was showing up late. She told me she had sitter problems. And she, like, she missed a quiz or something, but I dropped a quiz grade and whatever. They have a lot of quizzes. So one day, she shows up late to a test. And she has in her hand 
her baby's carrier and she has this little baby and this baby's a number of weeks old not even that old shouldn't even be around sick nasty human beings Hmm. so she comes in and she obviously looks like she's torn apart her sitter bailed on her and it was probably somebody she knew not like a licensed sitter or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, or i think her mom couldn't do it and it was just she was a wreck she missed a certain section or she was late to the test so she had limited amount of time to answer questions and she the baby started crying and she started picking up the baby and trying holding the baby and just lifting him up and down and trying to flip through the test i didn't have a problem with the baby being there first of all i was like props to you yeah and so she was having a hard time holding the baby while also answering the test and she's sitting there trying to you know do the little multiple choice thing and i was like come here and i walked over and i picked up this baby and I just held the baby while she took her test. But Miranda, how come you didn't become viral like all those male professors who fucking do that? <laughs> oh, I know, because. <laughs> so we do the, the great thing about this was I, I went over to do the listening examples because these students have to know what certain listening examples sound like. And I was like, uh, here's example one, play. All right, here's example two, play. And I was like, all right, here's uh, example C. I mean... Three, <laughs> I just gave you the answer. <laughs> you can thank the baby for that. And so everybody laughed. And the mom at the end of the semester turned in her final. And she was in tears. And she was like, I want you to know, like, I, I, think, like, I, I want to thank you so much. Because this was my last class before graduating. And she's going to be able to finish her. She finished her degree hopefully is working a badass job somewhere and taking care of her child and she just like thanked me because if i was an asshole i could have been like you can't have your baby in here you can't take your test please take (sighs) that baby out of here and it was you know i knew i was getting judged when i was holding that child isn't that interesting or I, I, I knew some people were weirded out by it. Mm-hmm. Some people were not. Some people were like, aw, that's really nice of you to do that. But I knew that some people were judging. Well, when they saw that baby being carried into the room, I saw people staring at her. Like... I may have been one of those people in my previous life. And when I say previous life, I mean three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't like children. If, any, if you know me, you know I have a shorter attention span than a child... And if you don't like me, I don't like you. That's how I work. So, um, but I have noticed that since all my friends have decided, hey, I'm going to push a human out of my body, (laughs) that I have become a little bit more empathetic to the plight of a mother, right? I come from a mother. I am a second mother in my household. I've helped. I'm the eldest of five, so I've helped raise my siblings when I was of age, 12 to watch them and drive them around and all that stuff. Not driving at 12, 16. (laughs) We were, about to, we were about to report to your CPS. I was the best preteen <laughs> ever. So anyway, I saw a woman at the airport with a baby carrier and like two carry-ons and all this shit. And it was a fairly early flight. And I helped her. Like I just dropped my stuff and helped her because I thought she's traveling alone with this kid who's obviously starting to get fussy. It's fucking early in the morning. And nobody else is going to. And if I say I'm a feminist, I'm here to uplift women in any situation. And I don't want to be touted as anything or anything like that. I'm telling this story because 
I feel like my mindset has changed to be more empathetic after reading this book and after seeing how my friends struggle, Mm -hmm. some of them single moms. Even though I grew up, my friend in ninth grade was the first person I knew who was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And her daughter, when she became 16, also got pregnant. So it's like, I've been around that my entire life, like young motherhood, right? And so I've seen struggles from my friends from a young time. So I can tell you what a teenager struggles with, with being a single mom. Mm-hmm. I can tell you what a woman in college struggles with, with being a single mom. I can tell you what a post-divorce woman struggles with, being a single mom. And I find myself disgusted that I didn't have empathy like that. So don't shout feel, Don't feel bad. Well, I mean, I feel bad for, for all the missed opportunities yeah. to show solidarity. Yeah. Okay, so that brings me to two things. One, shout out to all single moms doing it because you're doing it well, babies. Keep doing it. Number two... And single dads, too. We love you. But single moms more. um, Because they get paid less. And so... (laughs) True? Yes. Number two... I do want to circle back because... And back to what I was saying about this girl who brought her baby to my class. Yeah. When a a woman... When a single woman brings a baby carriage down to the very front row of a 200-something capacity classroom, she's being judged. She's not married. She's doesn't have her life together because she's bringing her baby to class. Like, sorry, rest of the class, I like you a lot, but fuck you. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. She's being badass. She's doing what she can do. She went out on a limb, came to the class anyway, took a chance on me. I, I was, like, scared of that baby being in that vat of disease. But she's doing what she can, and she graduated. Like... This woman, this woman was judged. Yeah. And I think one of the things as a, as women that we need to realize is that we need to be better being empathetic. We were all kids once. Our moms were also young moms once. And if you're a young mom too, why does it always have to be, and I guess maybe that's the definition of empathy, but why does it always have to be when I experience something, and I'm guilty of this too, that that is when I realize how it is for somebody else who does it on the daily. Oh well, the thing about and I just heard this in Brene Brown's book uh-huh. Rising Strong. When you're face down, mm-hmm. when you're in a face down moment, if you take a moment to open your eyes and look around, you start to realize what other people's suffering must be like. It takes suffering to know suffering, right? And if you're if you don't ever suffer in any equal capacity. You struggle to empathize. A, you never have those experiences to empathize, and B, you, you, oh well, that person must suck for must suck for that person. But here's the thing: the bullshit pro life agenda. This woman had her baby. She didn't abort it. She played by these supposed rules. Why are we, why is she being judged? Why are people giving her stares as she goes down to the bottom of the classroom? Because we've been told that single mothers or women who have children out of wedlock, and Anju, we need to get to why you have a problem with the term wedlock, is seen as criminal in this country. Or, you didn't abide by the societal norms that you are supposed to. Yeah, you're a whore. Yeah, you're a whore. Anju, you have a problem with the term wedlock. Well, why? Just it was the first when reading this it was the first time I really thought about that term and it's like where did where did that even come from like what is the etymology of this and what term and what context do you need to use the word lock when talking about marriage or so, weddings so does that mean like whenever now the urban vernacular is I got it on lock does that mean like what you got on lock wedlock like. <laughs> I know lock it down is where that comes from. It just sounds like inescapable. 
right. cha- chamber of but but it's it's used. It, this is what's particularly weird. We talk about it. We use it specifically in the context of having children out of wedlock. So it is a woman who is out of wedlock, who is not locked by wedding by a mar- wedding by, a ma- by a marriage. It's just a very weird term. It's the woman and the child because the child gets deemed a bastard after that. Right, yeah. but I just I, I just never really thought about it. What a um, fucked up word that actually is so go read all the single ladies <laughs> there is also a, actually we want to mention one more thing which is my my favorite part of the whole book is rebecca details the bond between two women who have their own individual lives wasn't one of them married mm-hmm. and moved away with her husband we don't want to ruin it for you before you read this book, but she Wait, are you talks, talking about Amina and uh, Anne? Yes, so, like the two friends that she wasn't married. She moved away to go live with her boyfriend. They're right, both okay. single now. Okay, <laughs> so these two women formed a bond. They ended up being for each other what technically husband and wives are for each other, except non-sexually. It's like female bonds are taking the place of what is technically supposed to be a marriage, which empowers us even more. Because we don't need men to have intimacy. I will live on a feminist commune if one is available for me. <laughs> like, I am not even kidding. For that reason you just But what said. about what about the sex, Pooja? Oh, you can I can leave it, right? Yeah, like, I'm not being in prison there. The Stepford. Like, I'll go home there for the <laughs> okay, benefits okay. of the feminist commune, but I will leave for the debt. Okay. And, um... <laughs> but you need four-star re- Yelp reviews in my universe for that. So anyway, no, I like that concept Miranda because that is to be quite frank my life it's my life I don't anticipate getting married and I'm going through a phase right now where I feel like I need to associate with other unmarried women but if you guys were to get married I'd love you still because I don't see tax purposes I already told you well yes but you You can't judge me for that I mean I will I will I feel like the dynamics of friendship change once one person in that relationship Enters a romantic one. Yes. I personally feel, and I'm not made to feel like this, but I feel like this, is that their lives are moving forward and my life is stuck in neutral maybe. Or that's the way they're making it seem when they alienate themselves. Well, or yes. Or that's just what society tells you. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, my friends don't make me feel like shit at all. I love you guys. Some this, of mine do. What, I'm saying in the sense of now you have family time. Now you have a routine. And I'm not part of that. And right. so what are my routines and what are my family times? Because I like being alone. I don't like sharing intimacies for extended periods of time. And to me, intimacy isn't sex. Intimacy is looking into your eyes and telling you what my future and dreams are uninhibited. Like that to me is a, a deeper intimacy than and fucking And a commitment you. to the other yes. person. Like yes. time, energy. Like, I mean... Yeah, you don't need to be married for that. I will say, I'm going to take this moment to shit on one of my friends because A, he's probably not listening to this anyway because he's not supporting me right now as a person. Um, Shitty person. (laughs) He's not a shitty person. He's a person who's being shitty. So we're not going to shit. He's being being shitty. He's a friend who's being shitty. Uh, I was trying to tie it into shitty Indians, but I guess what else? So this particular friend of mine... You know, we kept hanging out. He started dating somebody, and I didn't want to meet her right away because 
there's like this weirdness between me and all of the girls he dates. As soon as they meet me, they're fucking weird. And so that's usually because he makes poor choices in that arena. However, he is dating this girl, dated her for a year. I haven't met her yet. You know, I, I wanted to wait until they were a ride or die kind of couple. Anyway, I met her earlier than that, but I, for some crazy reason, for whatever reason, he just stopped hanging out with me, period. Mm-hmm. And the last time I tried to make plans with him was months ago. And this was one of my closest friends here who had known for years. And just, it's almost like he he's walking on eggshells with her or I don't fucking know what. But he has chosen the boring life of just being around her all the time. And maybe if that's what makes him happy, good. If it's not worth it to be in touch with your friend who's been there for a long time, if you want to dispose of this friendship... Because you found your completeness in this fetus child who thinks Taylor Swift is a scholar. Way to go, buddy. Um, way to go, buddy. Then, fine. So be it. But, and I don't know if, like, when are we, I like, I have some of his stuff at my house. Like, he's my, we've been friends for years. I have, like, I've borrowed instruments of his because, you know, he's a trumpet player. No, like, I eventually am going to have to talk to him and get him the equipment that I borrowed like is that what a conversation can be like hey can I like hey I'm moving away to to live with this fetus that I'm now getting married to and he's not engaged or anything but like he's going to you know one day he's going to call me and say hey I need this instrument back and he's not going to give a damn about me he disposed of me for this person and I never hated her I've always thought he deserved better Mm -hmm. and and that's just me wanting better for my friend. Mm-hmm. But I all actually just want him to be happy. And, you know, if this is his love, great. You know, mm-hmm. whatever. If it's what makes him feel alive, great. But I don't think that love is supposed to include disposing of people. Why would you automatically dispose of somebody you've been friends with for years? Right. Like, that... that like I disposed of friends for years at the election because I found out that they don't really care about whether I get shot in the, in the middle of a road. Like they obviously made poor, really poor choices, and I've disposed people that way. But I call that a tr- that's a that is, to me is a real reason to get rid of somebody in my life. However, he's not one of those. We're like minded, mm-hmm. and so it it just bugs me. It has always bugged me that you could dispose of a friend that quickly, and uh, because you're in a relationship. So I'm very keen on this idea that there are women who are friends with other women and they have this relationship and they don't need a patriarchal relationship or they don't need a relationship with a man for that, for that connection and that intimacy. I agree with you 100%. I think that in terms of, I don't have guy friends for this reason. Once they start dating... And I've done this myself before. I can't trust that the other relationships you have won't lead to something. It's not something you ultimately want. So that's my insecurities, right, with guy friends. But at the same time, I'm the victim of other people's insecurities in that you can't hang out with me because your girlfriend doesn't trust that we have a platonic relationship. And that's... That, that was definitely not our problem. Like, right. His girlfriend made me chocolate-covered strawberries, which was really sweet. I went to uh, Kate Weiser and got her and him these um, artisan truffles. Like, 
The mango ones are the best. The mango (laughs) habanero. Girl, high fives. Okay, so I was totally down for being, Mm -hmm. let's let's all hang out together. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't think he wanted that. And he disappeared on me. I have a guy friend like that who, when he gets in a relationship, you never see him again. And the women in that relationship come to find out later, complain that to him, I never get to see my friends anymore. Because, and I'm not saying your friend is like this, but I feel like that's the way guys, quote unquote, lock it down. In order, and I was a victim of this, so I'm talking about it in this sense, manipulates you into believing that nothing as important as building the foundation of a relationship. So everything else goes by the wayside. You're either friends, you're whatever. If this is important to you, you will devote uninhibited attention to it to make sure it's strong enough. Really problematic. It's really gaslighting. That's what that is. It's not just that, but like, it's problematic on so many levels. For one thing, it's one of the first steps toward emotional abuse. But also, secondly, it's the problem that this fallacy that the person that your romantic relationship has to fill all of your needs well yeah and there's all, not only is there it, there it, an abusive thing but it's also an addiction thing like if you have somebody who's codependent and i'm talking about codependency the addiction you're being what somebody else validates you in its entirety so you don't need to make an effort anywhere else because you're motherfucking complete with this person and you're probably having a terrible sex life because you're bored with them that's addiction that it could be abuse, it could be addiction, it could be power, but that's unhealthy, period. I mean, and it could also be the healthy part where you're in love with that person. You just can't stand to be apart from them, which also to me is unhealthy, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, some I people enjoy their spouses I and no, that's no, fine. I yeah. think you can enjoy your spouses and, and that's fine, but it, but usually healthy love like that in my in secondhand experience, but in my experience, it does not mean excluding everybody else that you care about. It doesn't supposedly care about. Because right. one of the one of the things I hear about that's really hard about relationships is, unlike female relationships, and we'll pivot to that in a second, is that you don't know if you're on the same page with the person. So you constantly have to be around them to figure out the likes, the dislikes. Am I loved? Am I not loved? Am I supported? Am I not supported? Is this going to last? Is this not going to last? <laughs> and if you're an addict, you do change everything about you to be with that other person. But exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so on some level, men and women both are... Not on some level. On every level, men and women are similar in this respect. Mm. They want validation. And if that validation comes from the amount of time this person wants to spend with you, then the more you invest in spending time with that person. Right? So it is a disgusting... It is a bad... (laughs) It is a bad cycle. And before we pivot to female friendships and how that's not and how that's different, I want to talk about what that leads to. We talked about... People and couples demand more of single people than single people demand of people and couples. Oh, the yeah, I'll cut my brother. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a different dynamic, right? So it's more of, for example, if it was up to me, I would have a fucking party when I turn 40, when I get fucking China. You register? I register. Mm-hmm. I want a toaster oven. I want fine China. I don't want any of these things. Actually, I don't. I want a day where... I am celebrated. That's not my birthday because I don't celebrate my birthday. I want a day where I am celebrated for my life choices. Yeah. Because to me, a wedding is a celebration of your life choice. Right. Right? Your baby life, showers, your life choice. Your life choices. And as single women, I'm not saying I feel put upon because I love my closest You're friends. You're put upon. 
Not to my closest friends. I'm not put upon. You're happy to gift them. I'm happy to gift them. it is a put upon. It is a put upon. Well, it's partially just the fact that it's become this industry, so the expectations grow exponentially almost. You know, like like it used to be a wedding gift, but then it's like a bridal shower and the engagement party. And a lingerie shower. And the bachelorette party. Pissing party. And it's a bridal party lunch. Right. And it's a bachelorette party in Vegas or, you know, Mexico or wherever. Like, you're traveling for it now. It, It just becomes... A greater and greater financial investment, Thanks basically. Thanks to Pinterest and all these other websites also do that. We live in a world of scarcity. Everybody's going to feel like that's what they need. And it's on the single person to bring the freaking money for it. This is the wedding industry. Yes. Like they, they make disgusting amounts of money. And a lot of that falls on the single person. Right. If we were to do a party for our life choices, if we really wanted to do it big... We might want to make a card that says the average amount of money spent by a single person on weddings, bridal, anything bridal related. And it's, it's not children. even just wedding. Then yeah. it's the children. And and it's not even just outward pressure. I was like, I, I was saying that like my birthday's coming up and I was thinking about what I want to do. And I usually go back to Dallas and try and like have a, a thing with my friends so I can spend time with them so I can see all the people I care about for my birthday. And I was feeling guilty about that. Like... Oh man, they come to my birthday every year, and I tell them not to bring gifts, but they do. And I never get to go to any of their birthday parties. This is kind of a one-sided thing. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I go to all of their kids' parties, and I buy all of their kids' gifts. Like, why am I feeling guilty about making them come to my one thing a year when I do put that effort back in spades? Like, that's ridiculous. Why do I feel guilty about that? What if you lowered your standards a little bit, married somebody who's like a piece of shit, had a couple kids. It's a lot lowering that a little bit. Okay, yeah. (laughs) If if you just lowered your standards a lot and married somebody who treats you like shit, if you just popped out a few kids that you're going to treat like shit and who hate you, then maybe you wouldn't have anything to complain about. Are those my choices? Yeah. Because I will take the guilt. Yeah. wrap up but yes i i will take the guilt on that too guilt for three yes we recommend you read this book the only thing that we have left to say about this book is that it is very repetitive it's a little repetitive i just i don't think i mean i think the information is all good and useful i just maybe think it could have been organized differently so that we didn't have to go back to things we talked about previously so much i wonder if that's different for somebody who is new to the cause Repetition is important. I get that. I just remember specifically in the in the history chapter when she was kind of recapping the history, I felt like we kept coming back to the Civil War and I kept being like, wait, I thought we passed the Civil War as far as the chronological history. So it was just things like that that I was like, wait, where are we in the timeline? I'm confused what's happening. That was a little bit disorienting for me personally. I can see I did the audiobook and when I did hear repetitions, I was like, I can see somebody who's somebody who pays very close attention to that might be a little annoyed by the repetition, but for somebody who doesn't understand it, the repetition is done in slightly different context every single time. Yeah. And therefore is kind of important. It's organized more by theme. Yeah. That's part of why. So it comes back to certain topics, but to talk about it in a different theme in the context of a different theme. So we would like to know what this book means to you. If you've read it, 
If you choose to read it, hit us back with your thoughts on it. And if you are female, male, gender non-conforming, we want your opinions. We want your thoughts. And on the institutions presented as well as what it's like to be single. Also, I'm going to say, as someone who normally will read the book and not do the audiobook, the audiobook on this, the narration was hilarious. Like, I just thought her, she was very dry and kind of... It was, it read yeah. like a thesis. Yeah. It read like a thesis. Finally, we know it took us an entire, what is it, nine Season. episodes <laughs> to, get to, to get to this book. However, we, our next book in our book club is going to be... Lily sings how to be a boss. How, how to, to be, be a boss, boss. spelled B A W S E. And we've talked about Lily on three other episodes. She is a YouTube star of Indian origin. Who is you know she's Indian Canadian. Can't get in the country. Whatever that means. <laughs> whatever that means. She has me of trouble, y'all. So, um, but anyway, she wrote this book about her rise to fame and her empowerment journey. So that will be our next book. So we hope you read along with us. You have a whole season. We'll probably get to it around this time next year. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're That's how long for, it'll take me to read it. <laughs> we're going to shoot for sooner than later, but... Unless one of y'all actually stands here with a gun to my head and makes me sit down and read we it. We can yeah. arrange that in Texas. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. until next time, this has been Miranda. Anju. And Pooja. With the Jilted Indian Podcast. Go in peace and power. <laughs> Jazz hands. <laughs> That's only funny to us. <laughs> My only contribution to every song. I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs>